It's a slightly longer passage today, um, but we're going to work through it uh, step by step. Why don't I pray that God will speak to us. Uh, Dear Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you uh, for Paul's uh, letter to the Philippians and his example to the Philippians as well. I pray that you'll be amongst us now, that we will hear what you have to say, that I will speak faithfully to it and that by your spirit you will uh, convict us of what we need to hear but also help us to live it out and put it into practice. Amen. Our natural instinct in life is to look at things through a very me-focused lens. So we've got this unspoken mental picture of what life is supposed to be like. And it's all supposed to work to my favour and to my comfort and to my happiness. But what would it look like if we looked at life through a gospel-focused lens rather than a me-focused lens. Uh, So when we talk about the gospel, you often see that word uh, in the Bible, uh, and Christians talk about it a lot. Uh, It's kind of shorthand for the whole message of the Bible. So Jesus is the promised Christ from the Old Testament, who died for our sin, who rose again, and now reigns in heaven. And he calls us to repent and believe, and to follow him, and to live a life in his service. Uh, That's the short version of the gospel. And if we accept that to be true, if we're Christians, then how might we see both the good circumstances of life and the bad circumstances of life, those difficulties and those struggles, how do we see all of that through the lens of living for Christ and seeing God glorified? And sometimes that's going to be about the choices we make and sometimes it's going to be about how we respond to the circumstances in which we are placed. And for Paul, his circumstances look pretty bleak. So right now he is in prison, uh, literally chained to a guard uh, somewhere probably in Rome. And if you look at it through a healthy, happy life lens, it's not looking real good. Uh, But for Paul, as he looks at his situation, he sees the whole thing as an opportunity. So he's sitting there in jail saying, praise God that he put me here. And it starts with him viewing his situation, not through his circumstance, but the opportunity around him. So verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. When we hear about Christians being persecuted, we often jump very quickly to the injustice and the intolerance of the whole situation. Uh, Certainly that's my reaction. Uh, But as Paul sits there in prison, he's seeing this as a chance to tell other people about Jesus. And so he's got a guard who's you know, chained to him all day, so he's kind of like a captive audience. Uh, but also it's been sort of you know, spreads around as you know, the palace guard hear about this man who is in chains for his faith. You know, for each of us, we've been placed in a particular circumstance, haven't we? You know, we're part of a particular family. We've got particular, holiday, you know, particular hobbies, particular neighbours. Uh, for some of us, uh, a particular work circumstance. 
And God has placed us in each of those situations for a reason. And each of those situations present an opportunity. Uh, Sometimes it's an opportunity to say something. Uh, Sometimes it's an opportunity to do something. Uh, But we're going to react in one of two ways usually, aren't we? We can either go on the defensive, uh, where we end up sort of trying to make ourselves a small target. You know, don't talk too much about controversial things. Don't ask questions that might lead to conversations about faith and life. You know, we'll just sort of mind our own business. That's one way we could go. Uh, Or we go the other way, where we see it as an opportunity. Here's an opportunity to stand up for Christ. And certainly that's how Paul sees his situation. And because of his situation, as he stands up and he's bold for Christ, he emboldens others. So verse 14, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. A few years ago, uh, I was uh, working for Anglican Youth Works, a kind of head office in Sydney, and I was responsible for engaging with the media around scripture in schools. And so my day started off just perfectly normal and went downhill from there very quickly, as all of these articles sort of appeared in in different newspapers all on one day. Uh, And at the time, I kind of felt like a boxer in the corner. You know, I had my gloves up and uh, just sort of taking the blows and and praying that I wouldn't say something really dumb and, uh, you know, get it caught on camera. Uh, So my prayer at that time was, you know, sort of Matthew 10. Do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At the time, you'll be given what to say. And I took a lot of comfort in that prayer at the time. Uh, But I also took a lot of encouragement from others, uh, other high-profile Christians who were standing up, not just sort of as a one-off, but but week in, week out, standing up for Christ, and often in really hostile situations. And so uh, there's a bloke in Sydney, uh, John Dixon, uh, who does a lot in that sort of space. You might have heard his name. Uh, Certainly our Archbishop, uh, Glenn Davies, uh, does a lot uh, with the media, and before him, Peter Jensen. I don't know if anyone ever remembers uh, when Peter Jensen went on Q&A a few years ago, and a really hostile sort of panel of people, and there he is, very gently, very graciously, standing up for Christ in that situation. And when you, you see people like that, certainly for, for me in, in my circumstance, you know, I took a lot of courage from them. You know, as I see them standing up for Christ, then it gives me the courage to do the same in, in my small way. Uh, and often, uh, for all of us, we don't see how our little acts of boldness actually embolden others and give others courage. Uh, So for me, uh, when I look at university ministry, uh, I'm always encouraged by the Christians on campus. You know, there they are with their Christian t-shirts and, you know, putting on, you know, a a Christian stall. Uh, They're inviting conversation with other students. They're walking up to people on the lawn and asking them questions. Uh, They are standing up boldly for Christ. Uh, in, a, in a context, in an environment that you can imagine could turn quite hostile very quickly. And yet they're doing it because the gospel compels them. The, the news is so good that it's worth risking that abuse to tell other people. So Paul's encourage, in, is encouraging others 
and emboldening others. And he's even encouraged by those people who are causing him all sorts of grief. So look at verse 15. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I, have put the, I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. You know, there's a tragic irony in Christian ministry that some people choose to use their place within the Christian community as an opportunity to be self-serving rather than self-sacrificing. They use it to to gain an opportunity to uh, get respect and credibility. Uh, And certainly that seems to be what's happening for Paul in this situation. But, you know, Paul looks at the whole thing and goes, you know what? Even though it's causing me all sorts of personal grief, the gospel is being preached. And actually, in this particular situation, it's kind of surprising because Paul isn't always that patient with people who are causing, you know, stirring up trouble. You know, so later in the letter, he'll say, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. That's a very different tone, isn't it? You know, just a couple of paragraphs later. But the difference, I think, is in the context. And so with these people who are preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry, they're still preaching the truth. And so Paul goes, I don't care what it costs me. If the gospel is being proclaimed, then praise God. But the mutilators on the flesh, on the other hand, they're actually preaching a false gospel. They're distorting the truth. They're diminishing what Jesus has done on the cross and the relevance of his resurrection and ascension. But whatever the situation, in this situation, Paul goes, I praise God, I rejoice because the gospel is being proclaimed. Whatever the motivation, good things are happening. And so he's you know, thankful to God. He's in prison, praise God. People are causing him all sorts of grief, praise God. And then he goes on to say, you know, even in the face of death, praise God. Verse 18, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, Paul is under this enormous pressure to compromise the message of the gospel and to deny Christ. But he still writes with confidence because he is trusting in the power of God and God's spirit to uphold him. And he's trusting in the prayers of his brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, God chooses to work through people. As we talk to other people about Jesus, those words are powerful, not because my words are powerful, but because God is powerful. And equally, God is powerful in how he chooses to use our prayer. I do wonder, though, sometimes, 
whether we pray too much that God will relieve us of our circumstances rather than praying for the courage to stand up for Christ and to be glorifying Christ in our circumstances. Because one certainly speaks to our conviction about God's power. You know, if we are unwell, God has the power to heal us. But I think the other, you know, talk, you know, praying for courage, speaks to God's plan for our lives. That God has a plan. That this circumstance that we are in isn't an accident. God didn't take his eye off the ball for a moment and, and I had a car crash. Actually, everything's in God's control. And so how should we pray in that situation? And in reality, it's not praying for relief or courage. We can pray for both. But ultimately, what we're really praying for is that God will be glorified in this situation. So when bad things happen to us, uh, it doesn't diminish the badness of that, of that circumstance. But how can God be glorified in this situation? When people do the wrong thing by us, it's, not, it's still a, the wrong thing. But how can we glorify God even then in that situation? I think the harder of the two prayers is to pray for courage. To pray that God will help me use this situation which I hate for his glory. Uh, and that means we are going to rely on the Holy Spirit, aren't we? Because by myself, I certainly don't feel that courageous. You know, when we're facing really serious issues in life, we don't feel that courageous. And for Paul, his courage is a testament to his salvation. So the word deliverance, um, which we've read in verse 18, is the same word as salvation. So some commentators feel that he's talking about deliverance from his present imprisonment, that he will be freed. And certainly that's Paul's expectation, uh, that he won't die uh, as a result of his trial, but he will be freed so he can continue to do good gospel work. But he's looking at it through the lens of, whatever my situation I'm going to serve Christ. And his salvation is both present and future. And so we saw that in the opening verses of this letter. So a little bit earlier, he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. So salvation is both present, we repent and believe and we are saved, and it is future. Uh, One day we will stand before God at the gates of glory, not quite sure what they'll look like, and he'll say, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's our hope as Christians. And how we respond in the present will be a testament to that salvation and that hope. So Jesus says in John 14, If you love me, keep my commands. In the account of Luke we read, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory. You know, they're two very small snapshots of what it means to live for Christ now. And certainly we're not going to do it perfectly, are we? Uh, And at times we are going to fail miserably. But Paul is confident that in the power of the Spirit, he will endure his present suffering, he'll stay faithful to Christ, and that his salvation is sure. And so whatever happens next, 
from Paul's perspective through that gospel lens, it's a win. So verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think that verse, out of everything we've just read this morning, captures the essence of this passage. If he lives, then he keeps working, serving the Lord, encouraging the Christians in their faith. If he dies, well, he's with Christ. You know, we certainly don't want to hasten God's timing. And for me, as a, as a younger person, I don't feel the, the imminence of standing before God. I don't feel the imminence of death. I ride a motorbike, so perhaps I should. But I feel sometimes, even as Christians, uh, the way we talk about life is almost as if we're clinging so tightly to the present, so desperately to the present, that we lose a sense of our hope in the future. For Paul, he sees both the present and the future through the lens of his service in Christ. And whatever it is, it's an opportunity. So if living for Paul means living to serve the Lord, then it's not too surprising that he'd be encouraging the Christians in Philippi to do the same thing. So verse 27, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. You know, there are lots of ways that we can conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. But in this particular passage, Paul focuses on two. So the first is how the Christians stand firm together. So united by God's spirit in terms of their bond together, but also united in their conviction. Even united in their conviction about what unity looks like. And for us to be genuinely united, well, that's going to take some discernment, isn't it? Because life is complicated. Even amongst a relatively modest number of people, we all see the world through you know, different ideas. Usually it's through the idea that I'm right and they're wrong. Uh, but Paul calls for unity, and it's a gospel-centred unity. So sometimes discernment means letting it go through to the keeper. Uh, that's certainly what happened in his situation with these troublemakers. He hears what they're doing. He knows that it's going to cause him all sorts of grief. But he lets it go through to the keeper. He doesn't yell and scream about this. There are some issues, though, that he will yell and scream about, and we see that later on. But he chooses to let one go, and he chooses to take a stand on another. That takes discernment. But whatever our situation, our capacity to be discerning is aligned with our capacity to view things through a gospel lens. That's why we spend so much time as a church in the scriptures because we're trying to understand God's perspective. How does God want me to see this situation? How is that different to our world? And the outcome of this unity, verse 27, is striving together as, as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who would oppose you. It's not just my job to tell people about Jesus in our area. And it's not just your job. Uh, It is our job. Uh, God has placed us in this particular community, in Shell Harbour, Murilla, Barrack Heights, Flinders, Blackbutt, all the other little suburbs in our area. God has placed us in 
this place, at this time, with this community to stand up for Christ. Uh, And sometimes that will also mean suffering together for Christ. And some of our striving together is going to be practical uh, as we uh, encourage each other in what to say uh, as we tell other people about Jesus. Some of it's going to be as we work together to have the various programs we run as a church and create the opportunity for people to come and hear the gospel. At other times, our striving together is going to be more moral support, that we just need some encouragement sometimes. We need to know that people are with us, uh, standing with us, uh, who give us a sense of confidence about what we're doing and a sense of solidarity. And for those who hate us for being Christians... It's not really about us, not primarily. Primarily, it's about God. Verse 28, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. One day, uh, those people who oppose Jesus, those people who oppose us and perhaps even ridicule us for our faith, one day they will stand before God, we will all stand before God, And all of a sudden they'll come to that realisation that they were wrong and that their own words will actually testify against them. But that same gospel that will condemn them is the gospel that saves us. Because when we recognise that we are sinners, when we recognise God is God and we need to repent and believe then we can be confident of God's grace. And how does that verse end? And that by God. We're not better, we're not nicer people, we're not smarter people. Uh, But in God's grace, we heard the message, we recognised that we've got a problem, and we responded. Uh, That is the only thing that goes in our favour. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggles you saw I had and now hear that I still have. As we enter a more oppressive cultural context, our convictions are going to be put to the test because our Christian values and our Christian beliefs are becoming increasingly divergent from our cultural's values and our culture's beliefs. You know, it used to be that you could still sort of blend in. You know, we've got a Christian heritage in this country, you know, and we could sort of just look kind of like everyone else but just be a little bit more serious about it. Uh, but that, that sort of nominalism is disappearing. You know, it used to be lots of people could sit on the fence, but that fence is going. Uh, you can no longer just blend in with our society. And actually with that comes an opportunity. And it's actually a good thing because there's nothing worse than the fence. I mean, besides the fact that it's uncomfortable, it also gives you this false sense of security. We sit on the fence because we think we're going to get the best of everything. But what happens if the fence doesn't exist at all? What happens if by sitting on the fence we think we're right with God, but we're not? We've got this false sense of security, false sense of hope. So as our culture and our faith diverge, at least that becomes clear. 
that if we're really going to stand up for Christ, then we really are going to be different to our world. Not just different in our beliefs, but also different in our values together. And so we've got a choice to make, don't we? We either follow the world or we follow Christ. And whatever bed we make, well, that's the bed that we've got to lie on. And for Paul, that choice is a no-brainer. And actually, to sort of overextend the metaphor a little bit, even the lumps in the bed, from Paul's perspective, are a good thing. You know, those lumps uh, have been the opportunity to proclaim Christ while he's in prison. They've affirmed his salvation as he's stand, as he stood firm for Christ. And they've affirmed the final end, that he will stand with Christ in glory. So how would our life be different if we really believed to live is Christ and to die is gain? It certainly doesn't mean that we don't enjoy life. God has created so many good things to enjoy, but how do we even see those things from a gospel perspective? So how do we see rest and pleasure not simply as personal indulgence or as getting away from life and ministry? How do we see that as an opportunity to rest and recover uh, so that we are then, you know, back, get back into the game? That we're re-energised for our service? How do we see our work situation and the money we earn as an opportunity for the gospel? How do we see our family situations? We love our family. We just love all the good things of our family. But how do we also see that as an opportunity to encourage one another in our love for God? In just the small conversations we have day to day, driving in the car, as we pray together, as we read the Bible together. Now, maybe you're the only Christian in your family and that creates another opportunity. How do you you know, share the good news of Jesus in your family? How do you stand up for Christ in that context? Whatever the situation, I think my, my prayer from this passage is how do we view life through a gospel lens? And to do that, we really can only do it with God's help, can't we? Because the natural tendency is to always flick back to that me-focused, it's all you know, my happiness lens. But how do we have the courage of our convictions? And let's pray that God might give us that courage, that we might glorify him in the good of life, but also in the hardest times of life. Let me pray. Uh, Dear Lord, we do thank you for the grace that you show us, that you would choose to save us. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, for everyone here who is a Christian, who follows you, that we might see life through your gospel lens, uh, that everything is an opportunity uh, to proclaim your name, to glorify you. And so, Lord, I pray that we will have the courage of our convictions. I pray that you will give us the clarity uh, for how to do that in each of our circumstances. We pray for these things in your son's name. Amen.